Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson at long last, right? It's your good friend and host, Steve Robertson. Man, I have had a very, very frustrating week dealing with these internet issues. It's tough, man. It is. And we grew up without it. Now we can't live without it. It's crazy. So I'm, I'm actually having to upload the show using my, my hotspot, which is still causing some issues with some other functionality of my job. But the reality of it is I'm here. Later than I wanted to be because I spent about three hours on the phone with AT&T trying to get these situations resolved. So hopefully that'll get taken care of tomorrow. <clears throat> it is what it is. But here we are. Big show today. A lot to talk about. Spent some time earlier today interviewing Bill Knight, former Mercer Bear Big uh, Bill Knight. You know, we talked about him earlier in the week. Uh, Wild Bill, as they call him, out from uh, Jenkins County, Georgia. Little town out there, uh, 99 people, I think he tells me. Majority of which he's related to. Makes interesting, right? Said he loves Starkville. I'm sure it felt like a metropolis to him. Said R.J. Yeager uh, was very instrumental in his thought process. You know, said he felt like, hey, that R.J. was a guy that had played at both schools and had a good experience. In the end, it boiled down to state and Ole Miss. The last two NAFL champions of college baseball, that, that, that doesn't hurt to, to say, does it, right? A little bit, maybe. And said in the end that uh, after visiting Starkville, he just elected not to visit Oxford, even though they really wanted him to. But uh, a guy that's expected to play center field at Mississippi State, you know, we've had so many issues with center field this year. We've gotten really spoiled the last several years. You know, from 16 through uh, 19, you know, 16, 17, we had Jake Mangum. And then 20 and 21, you had Rowdy Jordan slot over from left to play center, even though he wasn't a natural center fielder. Did a really good job for us. This year, it was basically a revolving door of players. I think in the end, we played with five or six center fielders when it was all said and done. Matt Quarter played there, Jess Davis, Braywin Skinner, Brad Cumbust. I'm forgetting somebody. But it, you played it, I played it. We never could settle. Nobody would ever just take the job. So you go out and you recruit a guy from the transfer portal that is capable of taking that job. Big bat, hits a ton of home runs, big RBI producer. So if nothing else, we ought to have that, that settled. And you begin to look at all this. You think about Colton Ledbetter in left, Bill Knight in center, Kellum Clark in right. Cam James gets drafted. He'll have a decision to make not really listed among the uh, mocks these days you know so maybe he gets drafted maybe beneath what he expects and he comes back and that, you know, he and Slate Offord will both play some at third base Lane Forsyth again one of the elite defensive shortstops took a step forward last year offensively need him to take another step but I'll tell you if we're getting 270 out of that guy and he's only making a handful of errors on the year with considering the range that he has at short I'm okay with that you get Amani Larry in here, looks to be the heir apparent there, but also, too, you go get a guy like uh, Nate Chester that can come in and compete at short and at second, give you some depth in the middle infield. Hunter Hines at first, still eager to see what happens with Luke Hancock. I do think if Luke returns, he slides behind the plate. And then Ross Highfield, of course, a newcomer. I expect him to probably catch midweek and maybe one day on the weekends. But you start looking at this lineup, you start getting excited. You know, it should be a very offensive club. Got to get some arms. We've gotten some. Need a couple more. Got to kind of shore some things up. Still waiting on uh, Jackson Kelly to announce his commitment. We still believe Mississippi State's in great shape. I don't know what the, uh, 
The holdup is maybe there's a late suitor. I don't know. But the reality of it is you get Landon Gartman. That gives you an option on the weekend, whether it be a reliever or is it a starter. You get Nate Dawn. We expect him to be a part of the bullpen piece. He'll be given the opportunity to start. You know, that's what fall camp is for, kind of figure those things out. Aaron Nixon, of course, a guy that's coming in expected to take over the closing role. So all of a sudden you start realizing this thing is kind of coming together for us. We just got to finish. You get Jackson Kelly, a guy that can compete as a closer, but also, too, you know, as a reliever, whether it be you know, long relief or short relief or whatever. It's a guy with some really filthy stuff. And, of course, there's Paul Smesco. Smesco. Skeens. Paul Skeens. I'm thinking about the old basketball coach uh, from Florida Gulf Coast. But uh, you get Skeens, you know, all of a sudden he could be your Friday night guy. He could DH. He could catch if needed to. You know, I mean, those are things you start looking at with all of this. Uh, but anyway, we're getting down towards the end of this transfer portal recruiting process. Skeen's not expected to make a decision until a week or two after he gets back from Team USA Baseball. That's going to take the balance of the month. Then he's expected to visit Arkansas. I guess things could change. I know there's some LSU optimism out there, but when isn't there LSU optimism? That's one thing I've learned about the LSU media and fan base. They expect to get everybody in every sport. So I don't spend any time worrying about that. Not that people, oh, he's already agreed to an NIL deal. Okay, let me tell you, you don't know anything about Paul Skeens. Based on everything that I have heard, Paul Skeens is not that dude. If, he, if he'd already made a deal with LSU, if he'd already decided I want to be an LSU Tiger, he would have already announced that. He wouldn't prolong this thing and hold everybody hostage. It's a guy of character. Everybody I talk to about him, even college baseball circles and even some people that were involved uh, you know, out at Air Force, covered Air Force, have said, hey, this, this guy is a really, really solid guy. You'd expect that from a military service academy. But they say, hey, Paul's a guy that's going to take his time, very mature guy, going to make a business decision. And that's not necessarily indicative of an NIL opportunity. That's about what's best to position him for the Major League Baseball draft next year. He's not a sucker for the quick reward, as James Hetfield once sang. So it, it flies in the face of everything that I know about Skeens to hear these LSU people say, oh, he's already decided he's going to be a Tiger. I truly believe if he had, he would have already announced. He wouldn't waste Arkansas's time. He wouldn't hold Mississippi State hostage. There's a lot of optimism, too. You talk to enough people, you hear whatever you want. You go read these message boards from all these teams and the Paul Skeens sweepstakes, and they all seem to think they're in, in good position. And I think what that really tells us is that nobody knows anything for sure. Right? So we'll see how things go. And listen, I don't put it past Chris Amonis at all to sneak a guy in here late on us, too. You know, Chris is a guy that's kind of always working, always kind of plotting, scheming, trying to find a way to get the most out of the recruiting process. And so I'm not going to sit here and tell you we know everything there is to know. You know, Will Hoyle snuck in on us last week as a walk on. Uh, that was a guy we weren't even really discussing. So I won't be the least bit surprised. If there's another pitcher, I think position-wise, we're completely done. I won't be surprised, though, if another pitcher pops up here late. I think ideally, though, if you could get Jackson Kelly and get Skeens, I think you feel like, you know what, hey, we're done. We're absolutely done. A lot of your newcomers are arriving, your high school guys and even some of your junior college guys. I believe all but maybe a handful of the 2022 signees are on campus. Jet Williams, not one of them. Jet uh, recently mocked up, headed to the Red Sox in the first round. 
We don't think he'll make it out of top 25 picks. We firmly believe that he's going to sign a pro contract. So go ahead and remove that as a topic of conversation. I get a lot of people that message me, hey, Steve, what about Jet Williams? Guys, he is going to go pro. Go ahead and just rest assured in that knowledge. Some other guys out there, Bradley Lofton's a guy that people think could go fairly early. The latest mocks have him going uh, much later. And I've been told that he's going to need, uh, you know, seven figures in order to bypass his college career. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, the latest mocks have him making a lot less money than that. This is a guy, too, that grew up playing, dreaming of playing at Mississippi State. So that's a factor in all this stuff, too. If it's not life-changing money, you're probably not going to bypass a, a lifelong dream. But I feel like right now we feel pretty confident that uh, most of these guys are going to be okay. Uh, Dakota Jordan here on campus, that's big. He's a guy, too, it has been back and forth with. There were some people back in the, in the spring that were like, oh, he definitely wants to sign. And then I spoke to him, and he's like, no, nah, I think I want to go to school. I'm going to wait and see how things go, but I think I'm going to go to school. And then he ends up popping up at the MLB Combine and had a pretty good experience out there. So there could be somebody take a chance on him, but I think, again, he is going to command a pretty high signing bonus in order to bypass college. So at this point, If you're a casual fan of Mississippi State baseball recruiting, let me just go ahead and kind of sum it up for you. State signed the number seven recruiting class in the country. State is on the cusp of signing one of, if not the best, portal classes in the country. I think if they get Jackson, Kelly, and Skeens, I think you'd have to probably give State the tip of the cap, or even over LSU, because State's guys are expected to come to school. And then now of that number seven recruiting class, it looks like the only guy for sure you're not going to get is Jet Williams. The shortstop looks to be the only guy you're not going to get. Then there may be some others. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that State's going to get everybody. There may be some others because it all it takes is one team, one team with the right amount of uh, paycheck to get a guy to go. But we believe that this class, for the most part, is going to arrive relatively intact. And then you add these transfer portal stuff. And so basically you start thinking, okay, Steve, will we turn it around next year? We absolutely are turning it around next year. And I, it's funny, somebody bumped a thread over at jeanspage.com about how, oh, we're, we're two years away. Absolutely not. And you saw what Texas A&M did last year. It went from seventh in the West to the number five national seat. Uh, can Mississippi State do that? Absolutely. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll put this on, on you as well. State's portal class on paper this year, much better than what A&M had last year. And give Slosh and those guys some credit for turning that thing around. And I, we really don't want those guys to get good and stay good, do we? We really don't. It's competitive enough. I'm not going to talk about realignment today, but I kind of wanted to bring you guys kind of up to speed on that. We're going to talk a lot of football today on the show. Uh, before we do, let's thank our friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I will have lunch there or dinner there one day this weekend. Not exactly sure when. Got a lot of options. Supposed to be headed down to Howl Mouse tomorrow night to go see uh, the band Twist play. It's a sellout show. My friend Craig Carter's son part of the band pretty exciting hopefully I can pull that off depends on this internet nonsense but uh and then also too my friends uh you know it started uh the Molly Ringwalds playing over in Birmingham over at Avondale Brewing Company may go make that not sure yet kind of figuring those things out but uh, I'm gonna go to Bulldog Burger Company for sure at some point this weekend you should too I can promise you if you mention to your family hey I'm let's go to Bulldog Burger Company you're gonna get a resounding yes from everybody else involved in that process. Go by having it El Beverage. Have a restaurant-quality hamburger, and maybe maybe you're eating a little bit light these days. Have that BLT salad. It is fabulous. I, in my opinion, 
It's the best salad that money can buy in the state of Mississippi. Absolutely fantastic. The portions are absolutely outstanding. I love being able to go in there and eat fresh. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive here in Star Vegas. They've got that new patio area you maybe hadn't checked out yet. You need to go see that. Lake Harbor Drive there in the Ridge and Flowood area. And, of course, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, we take some time to talk some football. And we're going to basically spend the rest of this show talking about football. What does Mississippi State need to do to improve upon last year? Now, some of us disagree. I believe those that are dissenters are absolutely incorrect. And I will die on this hill. Mississippi State improved last year as a football program. 2020, difficult year to really judge anybody, honestly, with all the protocols and contact tracing and guys missing games that weren't even sick. I mean, there was a lot to it. We were figuring out a lot. And then last year, you win three more games. And I've said on this show many times, the way the season ended has kind of left a sour taste in people's mouth. But that being established, you know, what would be considered a step forward this year? Well, I think you got to get at least eight. I know the schedule is a little more difficult. I think eight and four in a regular season is probably a reasonable expectation. Could you get nine? Maybe. But that's going to require an upset and, of course, holding serve against everybody you expect to beat. It's not as simple as just picking games, though. There are some things we got to do. So I thought, let's go back. Let's spend some time in the first real segment of the show talking about what things looked like offensively last year, where they were, how we did, where we can improve. Now, obviously, we're going to put up a ton of yards in the passing game. But, you know, let's look at, you know, total offense. Because one of the things that I think we forget from time to time is we were very inconsistent last year at times offensively. Yeah, we won seven games. Probably should have won one or two more. But offensively, we put up some big numbers. Just about all of it through the air. But we still were – I wouldn't say we were one of the more prolific offenses in the country. Matter of fact, state 29th last year in total offense. I mean, just merrily – excuse me, just <laughs> merrily – just narrowly missed, you know, squeezing in there, maybe get a top 25. But 29 is good. I think in order for State to take a step forward, we've got to be a top 20 offense this year. Probably even more than that. When you begin to kind of break things down, I mean, the most prolific offensive team in the Southeastern Conference last year, do you want to take a stab at that? It was Ole Miss. Now, Jeff Levy is gone. There'll, there'll be some changes. And obviously, Matt Corral, who was a guy that you know, everybody kind of hated on the kid early in his career. But you know, he really proved to be a very capable quarterback. Did a great job. Big year last year. The number two most prolific offense in the SEC was Alabama. Then we get to Tennessee and then to Florida. And then we dip on down there to Georgia. Georgia won the NFL championship with the 26th most prolific offense in the country. And some of that's kind of limited to quarterback play. And then there's Arkansas and then Mississippi State. So if you look at the numbers offensively and then look at the record of the teams ahead of us, most of them had a better record. Of course, Florida did not. You know, Florida had an abysmal year that led to Dan Mullen being fired. And how, how quickly did things go south in Gainesville? So these are just yards per game. But you look where, you know, State's right there in the meaty part of the curve. But I think in order for us to get to 8-4, we've got to be probably a top 20 offense. 
So what does that get you? Let's look at let's look at passing offense just for the fun of it, because we know we know we're going to be among the the nation's uh, bottom ten when it comes to uh, to rushing offense. But uh, let, you know, let's look at passing offense here. Western Kentucky leads the nation, four hundred and thirty-three yards per game. Then there's Virginia, Ohio State, and then your Bulldogs of Mississippi State, the fourth most prolific passing offense in the country. You start looking at some of these numbers, too. You know, State, 518 passing com, uh, completions. That's, that's more than most teams attempted on the year. We had 704 pass attempts. And you're like, well, Steve, that's a big number. It absolutely is a big number. As a matter of fact, it led the country. We threw the football more than anybody in America last year. So 704 pass attempts. How many interceptions do you think we threw? I'll give you a second. Despite the fact that we dropped back and threw the ball 704 times, we only threw nine interceptions. Now, a couple of them were very, very meaningful. They were. We kind of threw some picks there at inopportune times, but uh, when you start doing the math here, you know, Tennessee, you know, recently uh, rated by Athlon Sports, one of the best quarterback rooms in the country. They only threw three picks last year. Led the nation. Fewest number of picks. Get it done, Josh Heupel. And then there's Coastal with four, BYU with five, NC State with six, and we had one of those picks. The Roadrunners of UTSA also with six, Western Michigan with six, Alabama with seven, Ole Miss with seven, Ohio State, Pitt, Miami all with eight, and then there's us. So we're protecting the football pretty well. And again, it just seemed like when we did throw a pick, it ended up bringing points for the other team. It's crazy how it all works. But when you look at just kind of net and passing yards, you know, State's right there fourth. 4,918. Western Kentucky topped the 6,000 mark last year. Alabama over 5,000. Ohio State just behind them at 4,952. And then there's Mississippi State. So, yeah, we're going to be out there and throw it. Now, the question is going to be, you know, look at yards per attempt and things like that. Mississippi State – Next to last in yards per attempt, right at seven yards per attempt. The only team that had a shorter yards per attempt was New Mexico State. Now, some of that is because of the fact New Mexico State runs an offense very similar to ours. But we're a team, too, that basically uses the short passing game as an extended handoff, basically, as part of the running game. Looking at passing touchdowns last year, Western Kentucky 63, Alabama 48. Ohio State, 46, Pitt, 44, Utah State, 41, Wake, 39, SMU, 39, Nevada, 38, and then there's your Bulldogs, 37. So a lot of passing numbers favor us, and that it should be because of the scheme that we run. We'll take a quick look at the rushing offense just because I think it's important. You know, here, just because it is, right? Rushing yards on the year. You'd say, you know what, Steve, it's, it's really bad. It's really, and, you know, it's not that it's bad. It's just the fact that we just don't run the football. We just don't. We don't run the football like some other teams do. And I think that's an important aspect in every bit of this. You know, I, I look at these numbers, and I, just, I, I kind of think to myself, you know, we're kind of beating ourselves up over this. But Mississippi State dead last in the country last year, 821 rushing yards. Still had 10 run, run, 
rushing touchdowns. So we're averaging right at 63 yards a game. If we run it a little bit more, does that open the box up a little bit? Maybe so. Maybe so. I don't think it's a situation, too, where you can, uh, you know, fault Mike Leach for not running the football more. Probably could run it a little more just based on what the defense gives us. But, uh, you know, we're not a team that's very prolific when it comes to running the football. It's not that we don't have capable personnel. It's just the scheme itself doesn't really lend itself to a lot of running. We all see it. Now, one of the things, like, if you begin to poll people and say, hey, where should State be better? Now, a lot of people want to use all the buzzwords, right? Well, we got to be better on third down, Steve. That sounds good, right? I mean, it sounds like, hey, this guy's an astute observer of the game of football. State's got to be better on third down. Well, in fact, State is actually one of the best teams in the SEC when it comes to third down conversion on offense. Matter of fact, nationally, State is 17th. 17th in the country in third down conversions, 4.57% or 45.7%. So nearly half the time we're converting on third down. The only two teams in the SEC that did better than us is Kentucky and Alabama. So let that sink in for a second there. The third best team on third down offensively in the Southeastern Conference, Mississippi State. Coastal Carolina led the nation with just under 54% conversion. Alabama, Ohio State, Oregon, Kentucky, all above 50%. You know, Kentucky, of course, kind of using that running game to get things going. But, uh, you know, know, a team, obviously, that uh, you you keep the chains moving, the chances of you scoring improve dramatically, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or, you know, somebody like that to figure it out for you. Let's look at scoring offense. To me, this is where – the rubber meets the road, right? Because, like, every offensive statistic, because we can get so caught up in analytics, it's all about scoring. The scoreboard records the points that you score. Sometimes you can rack up a lot of yards offensively, as we have in some games, and not punch the ball in the end zone. It's all about scoring. Now, do you know who led the nation in scoring last year? It wasn't Mississippi State. It wasn't. Matter of fact, Mississippi State, not even in the top 50. Mississippi State scored 30.9 points per game last year. You're like, wow, Steve, 30 points. I guess that's not true. I guess we were right there at, uh, in a, right there around the top 50. But there were a lot of teams ahead of us in our own league. Looking at the 21 SEC team football statistics, Alabama, 42.7 points per game. Georgia, 40.7. Of course, Georgia, a historic defensive effort last year. Tennessee, 38.8. Then Ole Miss, 35.9. Kentucky at 33 and a third. And then Florida, 31.8. Arkansas, 31.5. Then there's your Bulldogs. And if you look at the teams behind us, the records are very similar. Missouri, Auburn, Texas A&M, they won 8-4, LSU, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. And, of course, A&M, everybody remembers them beating Alabama. They forget the fact that they lost to State, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. So in the year you finally get over the hump and win your big game and beat Nick Saban, you lose three games that were essentially toss-ups and a couple of them in your neck of the woods that you probably shouldn't have lost. But in order, I think, for State to take a step forward and get to eight wins or better – you got to get this scoring average up. I think you probably got to get into the... 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Mid-30s. I mean, how many games last year did we look at it and it's like, yeah, the defense did their job, and then offensively we couldn't quite get it done. You know, we have been there, right? I mean, that's, again, it all goes back to consistency, continuity on offense. There are a lot of times, too, you know, when, when you've got younger players, you're going to deal with some of that stuff. But the reality of it is we're not young anymore. We're a veteran team. We've talked about that extensively on the show. A lot of those guys that took their lumps the last two years are now juniors and some of them even seniors. So it's time for us now that we've got so much in command of the offense to put the ball in the end zone with greater regularity. Again, I go back and look, you know, the NC State game, we essentially dominated that game from millisecond quarter on. You win it 24 to 10, give up a late touchdown that makes the score look a little better. Defense was outstanding, but offensively, even though, listen, NC State, what, they win 9, 10 games last year? We had opportunities to put that game away, really put some distance. You go back to the Memphis game, you know, hey, right out of the gate, we give them, a, we give them seven points. Then we're kind of battling and battling. We get the lead and got a chance to really punch that ball in before the half and put the game away. And then we don't. Ultimately lose the game. LSU, very, very inconsistent offensively in this ball game. And people are like, well, you look at the score, and like Steve, it's 28-25. It's true. And all those points count. We scored 15 of our 25 in the fourth quarter when the game was essentially decided. It was 28 to 10 at one point. It really wasn't the game that, that maybe the final score suggests that it was. It's 28-10 with 11:32 to go in the game. So while the score looks pretty good, the reality of this game is it really wasn't as close as the score final score indicated. You know, we get it 28-17, you know, we're still down. You know, 11 points there. You get a play and you go down and, and, and you score again. And now it's 28-25 with two minutes to go. You're hoping to get it back. We, we kick the onside kick. We don't get it. They kneel, they kneel it down. And so, again, the box score kind of, kind of hides the fact that LSU really kind of held us underfoot offensively for much of the game. Texas A&M, we had some opportunities there to get some separation. We did, and of course, we didn't do anything against Alabama. Vanderbilt, we were prolific offensively against them, and we should be. Really good offensive game against Kentucky, and offensively, we played pretty well against Arkansas. Needed to get a stop late. 
Needed to get a field goal here or there. We didn't. Offensively, we're outstanding against Auburn. We kind of, the first half, we kind of, you know, scuffled our way through. But we got it going when it mattered. Then, of course, offensively, Tennessee State, you run over those guys. And then, you know, Ole Miss, that's a game, too, you go back. And, again, I, I, I contend to you, Ole Miss was a better team than us last year. I know, listen, we're up 6-3 after one, and they score to make it a 10-6 game at the half. And like all of you, I'm thinking, we're good. We're going to make this thing happen. We're going to be good. They out, then they shut us out in third quarter. So from the second and third quarters, against an Ole Miss defense that was pretty good, they weren't great, we get shut out in two quarters. So half of the game, you're not recording any points. And some of that, too, is because of bad special teams. But we don't score. And so you get through three quarters of play. It's 17-6. to six. We're down two possessions. We have a chance to kind of crawl back in a game, but we don't. Defense kind of tired out there. And you start looking at these numbers, too, from this ball game. You look at team numbers here. Got them here in front of me. You know, we had 30, we had 30 first downs. They had 23. We had 84 yards rushing. If I told you we'd get near 100, you'd probably think we'd win a game. They had 154. A lot of that came from Matt Corral doing a good job, especially on third down. We outpassed them by 102 yards. We outgained them. 420 to 388. We couldn't put the ball in the end zone. They could. That was the difference in the game. They were the better team. They were. And then Texas Tech, and this is why I think so many people are just kind of holding their breath here. Like, you know, Steve, I just don't know what to think. We didn't play. I mean, you know, we had some guys out. But they were all mostly on defense. You know, so you, I don't really fault the defense for giving up some yards here. You know, we, they ran all over us because we just didn't have much in the middle. But we scored seven points, you know, against a Texas Tech defense that was terrible against the pass. And, and give Sonny Cumbie and those guys some credit. You know, they know the nuances of the scheme. Sonny Cumbie and Mike Leach disciple, and that, that they beat us. But that's the thing you look at, and it's like, man, Steve, we got this awful Texas Tech team that's going through a coaching change, and we could put up seven points. So I get it. I get the angst, Right. I really do. And it's like when I look at these team numbers, it's just, it just just blows me away. Just 22 first downs. We ran for 54 yards. We outpassed them 290. So we put up 344 yards. We allowed 512. And that, and that kind of gets to another point that we're going to make in the second half of the show is it's not just the offense that has to be better. You know, we've got to convert a little bit better on third down, but that's not really our issue. we got to be a top 20 offense, but that's not really our issue. Our, our bigger issue is is scoring offense and then finding some continuity. I mean, how bad are we last year in the red zone, you ask? Well, you know, we all dealt with it, right? I mean, we all saw it ourselves, and that's the thing, too, that sometimes with this scheme, you kind of bog down when things get a little tight. And so, you know, I'm running down the numbers right here, too, just kind of looking at this because I think it's just – it's one of those things you look at in hindsight – because, you know, we just think, well, you know, this happened. We, guys, we were 57th in the country in red zone offense. So where do we get better? Scoring offense, I think, has got to go up five points a game. You can see that's a considerable amount. It is. But in this offense, I don't know that we're scoring with the frequency we should. Now, with a mature quarterback like Will Rogers now with two years and a year and a half of starting under his belt, 
I expect that to go up. Jade Wiley, Austin Williams, those guys now two years in this game, you expect that number to go up. So, yeah, you got to be a top 20 offense. I think you got to get the scoring margin up five points. But this red zone offense, this, this is one, this is the pits right here, man. And when you begin to factor in how bad our special teams were, we're going to talk about that later in the show. When you get down close and you can't get the ball in the end zone and you got to deal with bad kickers, you lose games. And we did. So it all kind of works hand in hand. But you start digging inside the numbers here. And again, it's not just about the, the amount of offense we do and how many yards we chew up. It's the amount of points we leave on the field. It's how many times we do move the chains and get down close and then come away with nothing, or in, in some cases, three. But there were a lot of times last year we got inside the 20 and came up empty. So we've got to be better. And maybe the running offense is a part of that. Maybe we get down close. And we saw some of that last year where to kind of keep people honest, you ran some inside the 20. But 57th in the country in red zone offense is not going to win you many games. You know, Tennessee's right there with us. Auburn's right there with us. Kentucky's kind of right there with us. And none of those teams, I think, would you consider those teams elite? And we also are not the big play offense. Tennessee sometimes scores big plays. Auburn scores big plays. We're this methodical offense. So I think red zone offensive conversion percentage is probably a bigger detriment to us because we are not an offense that is built on the big play. So that's where you got to get better. That's how I see it. Maybe you disagree, and that's okay. But there's plenty of room for improvement. And I don't think it has to be a major improvement to get major results. I mean, we talk, we're talking five points. That's two field goals. That's a touchdown. You don't think you can pick that up? And you start thinking, if we, improve our, if we just improve our red zone offense a little bit, the scoring average is going to go up. I don't worry about total offense. We're going to be able to move the ball between the 20s. What we have to take a step forward as a football program offensively is in this red zone offense because people are going to play over the top. They're going to play two deep safeties. They're going to be in drop eight. They're going to, they're going to make you methodically move the ball down the field, and we have not proven that we can consistently do that in the red zone. When things get packed up tight, we have trouble converting. That's what absolutely has to change for Mississippi State this football season. And I tell you, the guy that's going to be in the center of all that, the guy that's going to kind of carry the mantle for us is Will Rogers. He's going to be your prime shrimp player of emphasis here. Remind you to go to primeshrimp.com. This is our last month with them, so you need to take advantage of it this month. Promo code Boneyard to save 20 bucks off your order. I love Prime Shrimp. You will too. A great company, been in the shrimp and business since 1940s. How about that? A lot of fly-by-night places out there. Anybody that stays in business for 80-some years, those people know what they're doing. Four great flavors to choose from at primeshrimp.com. I am partial to the French Quarter Alfredo, though I do like the Simply Seasoned. At some point, they've all been my favorites. Find your own favorites at primeshrimp.com. And the best thing about them, too, is they're ready to cook shrimp. Not all the, the craziness... <laughs> that goes along with store-bought shrimp. You know, you gotta, you gotta bathe them, you gotta devein them. There's all this stuff that goes with it. These are ready to cook. You get home from work, you kick off your shoes, you put on a, a pot of water to boil, you drop those shrimp in 10 minutes later, you're ready to eat. Quick, easy, not a lot of cleanup, not a lot of prep. Again, that's primeshrimp.com. Visit them today, promo code BONEYARD.
All right, it's time for today's top 10 list. You know, as always, the top 10 list is brought to you by my friend, your friend, our friend in the mortgage industry, Blair Chandler. A winner, shall we say. I'm a firm believer of sticking with the winners. That's what I do. It's who I am. I've learned the hard way to do business with people that know what they're doing. Blair is a mortgage professional, 21 years of experience, two years running now, top 1% close ratio in the country. Let that sink in for a second. A guy right here in your state getting things done. He has seen the atypical property. He has seen the non-conforming borrower. So maybe you're a you know, hard-to-finance mortgage E. Be sure and check him out and let him go to work for you. Visit him at closewithblair.com at C-L-O-S-E with Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. And mention to him that you heard about him on the bond yard. He's going to pay for your appraisal. It's about a $500 value. Interest rates are going up. You probably can't afford to wait too much longer. Let me give you Blair's personal cell number. It's 601-500-2344. 601-500-2344. Again, that's closewithblair.com. Our friend Randy Pruce, and I believe I'm saying that correctly, hit me up and said, Hey, Steve, how about Robert Palmer? And I got to thinking about that. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, there are a lot of songs that Robert Palmer sang on that I love. So we put it together. There are some songs from my youth that Robert Palmer sang on that maybe aren't the big hits and many others are. Robert Palmer, of course, kind of began as a blues slash funk guy, then kind of became more of an early 80s rock-friendly artist. And then things changed for him tremendously when he joined the guys from Duran Duran and formed the Power Station, which is that album is phenomenal. If you're unfamiliar with it, we're going to have a couple songs from that album. We don't have uh, communication on the list. That's probably an honorable mention, communication from the power station. And then next thing you know, Robert Palmer emerges from the ashes of the power station, uh, you know, dismissal, I guess you could say, and then puts together a remarkable solo career. And he wrote and performed many songs that you're very familiar with. So Robert Palmer today on your top 10 list. The only ballad on the list goes back to number, our number 10 song. It's She Makes My Day. And it's exactly what you would expect. It is this kind of lover song. You know, I'm so glad she's in my life and everything is made better because she's here. Some of us have found that. Some of us haven't. Still a very good song. Be sure and check that out. Number nine, from the synth pop days, from the very early 80s, in the pre-Power Station days, it's Johnny and Mary. Now, this has a hard-driving synth-pop sound. And when Robert began to perform this era of his catalog, it really opened him up to a younger generation. Now, he's not quite like Flock of Seagulls, but uh, it was very radio-friendly. And this is just one of those songs, I think, kind of indicative of that era. And Robert, a bit of a chameleon, too, kind of adapted and changed his style a bit to kind of fit what was popular. And Johnny and Mary, one of the stronger songs of that era. I believe it's off the Clues album. Number eight, a song that's got an incredible bass line. It's got some real funk and some punch to it. It's a song called Sailing Shoes. If you're unfamiliar with it, I encourage you to get familiar with it. And it's probably the, the last of these songs on this list that you haven't heard regularly now back to the debut album 
Sneaking, sneaking Sally Through the Alley. It's a song about exactly what you would think it is. You know, kind of sneaking around or whatever. Kind of creeping. Great tune. I love, love, love the music on this one. And I love, like, the fact that it's kind of a throwback track. And, and really, you know, we're back in the 70s. But uh, the female harmony part vocally on this is absolutely outstanding. Sneaking Sally Through the Alley. Again, probably one of Robert's bigger solo hits before the power station. I don't think there's any question. Number six, we're actually going to go with a cover here. We've got two covers on the list, and you traditionally know my policy. I honestly believe that the power station's version of the T-Rex classic, Bang a Gong, is better than the original. And I know that I'm going to get some messages about that. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I love T-Rex too. I do. I love how understated their version is i think the power station especially i think andy taylor really has a shining moment on this the percussion on this is phenomenal too but bang a gong they modernized this old rock classic and they had a huge hit with it and again that's off that power station album if you're unfamiliar get familiar with it bang a gong get it on and i love robert's vocal on this it's such a great cover number five is also a cover but it is a huge solo hit for Robert Palmer. It is a cover of an old uh, Chanel song, or Sherelle song, excuse me. I didn't mean to turn you on. I didn't know that it was a cover until I started doing the research for this list. That's why it's number five. Now, we get into the top four here. I think most of us would probably agree this is, these are the top four songs. We may disagree on the order, but I think we'll all agree that these are the top four. So we're going to go number four with Simply Irresistible. And, you know, Robert had that little streak of, uh, of solo hits there in, in the MTV video music videos. He won some awards for those. He had the all-female band where everybody's hair was slicked back and they had on a ton of makeup and they were kind of pantomiming um, and pretending to be musicians. They weren't. They were incredibly beautiful women. Uh, and a lot of people didn't like it. People were like, hey, you're kind of objectifying women here. And then Shania Twain answered that and kind of, in her video, she was the well-dressed superstar, and she had a bunch of guys dressed in the same way. I thought it was a nice little uh, play by Shania Twain, but Simply Irresistible, a great tune. Number three, back to the Power Station album. This was the debut single off that album. A huge hit. It's Some Like It Hot and Some Sweat When The Heat Is On. I love it. I love how the drums are mic'd up on this album the whole way through. You know, I'm a big bass guy anyway. I like that deeper, richer sound. I think they really capture it here on Some Like It Hot. That's your number three track. Number two, this goes back to the 70s too. And you may not even know who sang this. Because a lot of people have covered this track. But it's Doctor Doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Bad case of loving you, your number two track. This is an absolute rock classic. A lot of people probably didn't realize Robert Palmer sang. He did. You're like, oh, I thought that was the guy in the suit. Yeah, well, before he was in the suit, he was in your face. And number one, and every time I hear it, I think about the movie Cocktail. You know exactly where I'm going with this. It's addicted to love. And I remember there were a lot of people, too. You know, we have these uh, these misunderstood lyrics. There were a lot of people back then when the song came out that thought it was predicted to love. It's addicted to love. You might as well face it. Great song. Even to this day, when they play it like in bars and stuff, people respond to it. It's, just, it's a great track. So there you go, your top 10 Robert Palmer tracks. If you have an idea for the top 10 list, reach out and let us know. The best bet is to hit Roy up on Twitter at Dogmatic67. That's D-A-W-G, 
M-A-T-I-C-6-7. You can also find our top ten list available for play on Spotify. There are a lot of people that say, you know what, Steve? I have been turned on to some new tracks. This is one, maybe you knew one or two of these. Maybe you didn't associate a couple of these songs, Robert Palmer. And now you have. So, that, Randy, thanks for the, uh, for the suggestion. Happy to do it. I hope that I did the list justice. I'm pretty happy with the list. And, again, there are seven songs on this list that I think just about everybody has heard and knows pretty well. And then we can kind of sprinkle in some songs deeper in the catalog, some deeper cuts perhaps to give the list a little more girth, shall we say. So I think you'll enjoy this. Be glad that you uh, are a, a Boneyard listener because we, uh, we bring you the heat on this show. Uh, enjoy doing the top ten list. So, again, Robert Palmer. Now, we can now add him to our list of well over 300 artists that we have featured on the top ten list. Be back tomorrow with another top ten. All right, time to move on. Time to talk a little Bulldog defense. The segment of the show brought to you by Campus Bookmart. Campus Bookmart, I'm going to do my best to get in there tomorrow. It's been one of those weeks, right? Mama said there'd be days like this. She didn't say there'd be this many of them, though. There have been a bunch of them. Uh, so I'm happy to sit down and kind of record the show for you guys. But uh, Campus Bookmart, been with me for a long time. Long, long time. And I had Miss uh, Kathy Brown tell me the best advertising they've ever done in the history of their organization is with the Boneyard. And that is not necessarily just a compliment to me, but a compliment to you. Those of you that support me, support them. And I think that you found out, too, that Campus Bookmart supports you as a Mississippi State fan base. You can find all the latest, greatest Mississippi State merch at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays, and that is BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. That'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than 50 bucks, absolutely incomplete. Mom, it's summertime. School's about to start. Don't just buy school clothes. Get the kids something to wear to the ball games. Campus Bookmart. Again, campusbookmart.net, promo code BSR. All right, let's look at some defense here. The thing that I look back on last year, you know, we had our moments. You know, we talked about in the schedule, you know, how defensively we played really well in some games. We didn't play well against Louisiana Tech. We were outstanding against NC State. Could have actually kept them out of the end zone, give up a late touchdown there to kind of make the game seem a little closer than it really was. Defensively, we didn't play exceptionally well against Memphis. You know, people forget we gave up an offensive touchdown, you know, on a turnover early in that ball game. So, you know, they, they scored 31 points. We gift them seven. Uh, defense did not play well against LSU. Secondary, I thought we got exposed a little bit there, had some guys get injured, um, you know, give up 28 points. And this is an LSU team that was still very, very vulnerable. And even though we got them probably at full strength, we're the last team that saw them at full strength the entire year, I thought LSU kind of did what they wanted to do, especially uh, in the middle part of that ball game. I don't think we did what we needed to do to win the game. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we, 10 points, three, three quarters, not going to win you many games in the Southeastern Conference. It just it doesn't happen. So defense probably got tired, got worn down a little bit. It's to be expected. Kind of part of the deal, you know. Uh, it's a team game, right? It all works together. You know, but when I look at this, uh, you know, early in this ball game, you know, we, we get down 7 nothing. It's a 7-3 game at the half. They came out, made some adjustments at the half, and really kind of put us away there in the third quarter. Not a, not, a, not a terrible game, but we could have played better. Defensively, though, played really well against a and 
And, you know, we dominated that game for a while before the offense got going. And then late in the game, we needed to get a stop. And we did. Nate Pickering comes up there huge. And I really thought defensively we grew up a lot as a team on the road in College Station. You look down the stretch there. Guys, we allowed nine points in the second half. Nine. That's why you won the game. You know, we're up 17-13 at the break, and you give up nine in the second half? You don't have to score a whole lot to win. We didn't. We only scored nine points in the second half, as did they. But the difference is, defensively, we made the play. When, when you have a team that has to drive 90 yards to win a game, you got to expect your defense to be able to get a stop. We did. Alabama ran all over us. I mean, there's no point even talking about that, right? Vanderbilt, absolutely anemic offensively. We beat them 45 to 6. And uh, it seemed, if you recall, I want to say they got almost all of their yards, like on a couple trick plays in the first quarter. They didn't do a whole lot. I mean, yeah, I'm just kind of looking at, let me, let me pull this up here, looking at the drive chart here. You know, they just, they, they simply didn't have a lot going on for them. Uh, three and out, then five plays. They hit, a, they hit one big play and kicked the field goal. Uh, to end the first quarter. You know, the next drive, it's a one-play deal. They throw a pick. Then it's three and out, loss of eight yards. Four plays and a punt. You know, so, you know, defensively, we were outstanding in this ballgame. And we should have been. It's Vanderbilt, okay? It is. I'm not going to sit here and overstate their offensive capabilities. We played pretty well. I think maybe perhaps the best offensive game of the year that we played in conference was against Kentucky. And no, I don't think anybody was picking us. I think I was one of the rare people to pick Mississippi State to win the game. And State played outstanding in the game. A lot of people thought, well, you know, Kentucky, and there's so many people in the media that just are absolutely in love with Kentucky every year. They always expect them to beat us. Guys, we allowed 14 first downs in this game. 14. They are a balanced offense that ran for 66 yards. Through for 150. So we give up 216 yards in the game. That dog will hunt right there. We outgained them 438 to 216. And again, this is not a bad Kentucky team. I didn't think Will Levis was the guy that uh, was going to make them to be some prolific offense. But the guy was more than serviceable. He was a good player for them. Arkansas. This is one of those games where defense let us down. K.J. Jefferson caused some issues for us, especially late. You know, we give up 15 points there in the fourth quarter. And it's like we go down 10 nothing in this game. We battle back, battle back. And then at the break, you know, it's 13-7. to And you start thinking, okay, we got a shot here. We got a shot to get this thing turned around. And that's exactly what we do. And I thought, you know, we go right down and score and make it 14-13. And you're thinking, okay, give me the ball back, guys. Well, they put a pretty good drive together, and they make the field goal to make it 16-13. Yeah, we took the lead 14-13. They take it back 16-14. We held for a field goal there, and again, 51-yarder. I mean, can't be too upset by the defense there to give up a 51-yarder. Then we miss a field goal. We'll talk about that later. And then uh, the quarter ends where it's 16-14. So it's going to be basically a fourth-quarter fight here. We lose the fight. They go down and score a touchdown. They go up 23-14. And you're thinking, all right, we're in trouble. We're down nine, two possessions. They are run first offense. We immediately go down and score to make it 23-21. Just need defense to get us the ball back. 
give up a field goal. And we're still within striking distance, obviously. But they make the field goal here. Excuse me, they missed the field goal here. Yeah, thank you. They missed the field goal here after a sustained drive. So we get the ball back. You got a chance to go down and do some big things, and uh, we do. We score a touchdown to make it 28-23. We're going to win the game, right? They got to get a touchdown. We're up five, so field goal's not going to help them. We've missed field goals. They've missed field goal, a field goal. So with 222 to go, they got to go 75 yards, and that is exactly what they do. Now, the play that I remember from this one, and you may recall, when we talk about the missed field goal at the end, we got shafted here. And this was a huge penalty. It cost us the ball game. Fourth and one from our 25. And they run a little pick play, and they called Martin Emerson for holding. And he didn't hold him. That sustains a drive, and they go in and score. So while I want to beat the defense up for not getting off the field here, we had a bad call go against us. Traylon Burks had no chance to catch that pass. The ball was uncatchable, and they call us for holding. It was a terrible call, and it ultimately cost us the game. Now, granted, give Will Rogers credit, too. He gets the ball back with 21 seconds. We get down the field to give us a chance to kick field goal, tie the ball game. We miss, and we all knew that it was going to be missed before we trotted him out there. The kid didn't quit. But, again, defense got to get off the field here. Sometimes bad calls are part of the game. But uh, there's some other you know, plays within this drive, even before that penalty. You know, we had a chance to make some things happen, and, and then we didn't. You know, first, here, here's the thing that I go back to here. When looking at this drive here, there's always that play there. But you go back and you look, you know, the chunk plays were given up. You know, right, right out of the gate, we give up a you know, 29-yard pass to get it out near midfield and then uh, excuse me i'm on the wrong wrong drive thing here let me get here yeah here we go so they're getting us in chunks here seven yards to dominic johnson and then they run and then we're you know, complete tyson morris for 19 yards and morris had a big game against us and they're just kind of chewing up field here and getting down the field before you know it man they're already in our territory we had a chance to big big play here on third and six we make the big stop to force a fourth down. We don't get the play. But the reality of it is when you put your defense on the field with a lead with two minutes to go, you expect to win the game. And we didn't. We didn't win. Offensively against Auburn in this first half, we were absolutely horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. But then we talked so much about the comeback. Defensively, our guys give up six points in the second half. It was 28-10 at the half. At one point, 28-3. They're doing whatever they want to do, and we give them six points in the second half. And at that point, the game was already decided, right? We had already come back and taken the lead and just kind of beaten those guys apart. But you go back and you look at these numbers. It, it is absolutely ridiculous how well the defense played in the second half. Now, you got a punt here. Field goal attempt there. A punt. Turnover on downs. They get that late touchdown, 337 to go in the game, and then they fumble. You know, it's just like defensively we couldn't have played better. We could not have played worse in the first half, played better in the second half. So we got to find some consistency there. And, of course, you expect to play well against Tennessee State. You know, against Ole Miss, I didn't think the defense played awful. 
you know, where I thought we really struggled was getting Matt Corral on the ground. You know, we would get some pressure defensively, and then we weren't able to get him on the ground. And that's, again, a tribute to him. I didn't think their offensive line was very good. I think that they all saw that in the Baylor game, too, when you didn't have a guy like Matt Corral that's, you know, an elite athlete back there being able to make things happen for you when things break down. But, you know, consistency on defense in you know, last year was we had some injuries like everybody else, part of the game. But then to give up 34 to Texas Tech, and, and listen, that's the one game I can probably excuse because we had so many guys out on defense. We had a couple guys opt out, and we had a bunch of guys out with COVID. But we just weren't very consistent on defense. And we're older this year. We're healthier this year. We should be a better team this year. So let's look at some of these numbers from, from last year and see you know where does the improvement have to come from. We'll start with rushing defense. That has been a staple of the Zach Arnett experience. We've been really good against the run. We were 12th in the country last year. Did you know it? Did you know that we were that high in rush defense last year? 12th in the country. Allowed 113 yards per game. There were times we were in top 10. And we gave up some running yards late in the season against Ole Miss and against Texas Tech that kind of skewed the numbers a little bit. But we're third in the SEC in rush defense. Only Georgia and Alabama, who played for an AFL championship, did better against the run. Of course, Georgia's numbers were absolutely gaudy. And believe it or not, they were second in the country. Wisconsin actually did better. We only allowed 16 rushing touchdowns last year. And a lot of those were from point-blank range. But, you know, you start putting these numbers together here and you begin to realize, okay, we're pretty salty against the run. Is that because of the fact that we give up so much against the pass? And that's not really the case either. Looking at passing yards allowed, you know, we can be better, but we're right there kind of uh, a meaty part of the curve, I guess, in many respects. And when you, that's the thing, too. When you stop teams from rushing and you get leads, they have to pass. State actually 71st, allowed 231 yards a game. So we're back half in the country, but uh, – Again, when you begin to kind of put the whole thing together and you look at total defense, I think you begin to realize this is a team, despite the fact that we had some issues last year, performed pretty well. I, I won't say great. I won't say elite or anything like that. But defensively, we're pretty good. 30th in the country last year in total offense. 30. Not bad. In order for us to take the step forward, though, again, I think you got to push in the top 25, maybe even into the top 20. Now, and the difference in that, guys, is basically 15 yards a game. That's a difference. 15 over the course of the season and 12 games, you start you know, kind of doing the math on that. You know, you're basically talking a first down or two per game. Maybe that's third down conversion, right? And so you begin to look at it and say, okay, total defense, we're 30. Can we be top 20? I think we can be. I think we're more than likely going to be in the 20s. But when you start looking at the numbers here, you know, Georgia, we're looking at the SEC numbers. Georgia, Wisconsin had the best defense in the country last year, not Georgia. Uh, but Georgia, then Alabama is two, Texas A&M is three, and you get a little deeper there, there's Kentucky at four, and Mississippi State at five. So total defense stayed fifth in the SEC last year. And again, that's, you know, a league that contained two of your national championship game participants. Again, you look at the numbers here, and you begin to think about, we remember all the things that went wrong. But the reality of it is, is we just needed a few more things to go right, and it could have been a much different season. And it wasn't a bad season. It wasn't a great season, 
again, we took a step forward. But, um, you know, what, what we have to do is not give up the big play. I mean, how many times last year did we go zero coverage and get beat? We'd have somebody kind of backed up in a third and long. We bring the heat. We can't get to the quarterback. He makes the throw. And next thing you know, we're done. Mississippi State last year, 63rd in scoring defense, just under 26 points a game. And as we talked about adding five points a game, you know, goodness, if we if we can limit ourselves five points a game, that puts you among the national elite. In some cases, that's one big play of ball game, right? Georgia last year allowed 10 points a game. Okay, we're not going to get anywhere close to that. But if you think about this, you know, if you just look at, you know, teams that allowed just under 25 points a game, that gets you into the top 50. Teams that allowed right around 23 or less points a game, that gets you in the top 40. 22 points a game and less, that gets you in the top 30. And so you start putting all this thing together, and you begin to realize you know, the margins here to make us a more competitive team are really not that great. You just got to be a little bit better in certain aspects of football. And with a veteran team, you certainly should be. Let's look at red zone defense here. These are some of the things that you start looking at this stuff here. You know, the tail is in the tape, right? It's not just watching the game that makes a difference. You go back and you look at kind of how you're doing against everybody else. And you think, how many times could we not get off the field? And how many times when we got down deep did we get a stop? You know, we were not a great red zone defensive team last year. And some of that, too, I think is because of the fact, I think when we get down there and we don't and we, and we can't get to the quarterback, and I think part of that, too, is Jordan Davis went down last year. Randy Charlton was the guy that had to play a little bit out of position. And so then teams can kind of slide protection over there to Tyrus Weed's side, and we just didn't get home very often. And how many how many sacks did we lose last year? I mean, I remember Aaron Brule, it seemed like like a half dozen, right? We, we call the right play, and we execute it properly, and we miss the tackle. And the guy wasn't going to start here. I love the kid to death, but that's uh, a big part of it. But State, 92nd in the country in red zone defense last year. What if we're just 50th? Right? You start thinking about that for a second. It couldn't be that much worse, right? So you start working your way through this thing and you begin to realize, you know, hey, we got to be better in a red zone on both sides of the football. We got to be you know, better pass defense. But, you know, honestly, if you put those numbers out there and you're able to avoid the big play, and that's part of football too, right? I mean, sometimes they get you. But when you start playing your way through this thing, you begin to realize, you know, we were a couple plays here and there from possibly winning eight, nine games last year. All right, let's look at, at third down percentage for the defense. You know, offensively, we were one of the better teams in the country. We weren't on defense. And, again, you look at the total numbers and you begin to think, hey, you know, the total numbers are pretty good. Can you stop people from scoring, though? Can you stop people from sustaining drives? State 94th in the country, third down percentage defensively. And, again, that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with your red zone defense. When you have to be able to get off the field, you got to be able to get off the field. And we were one of the worst teams in the country, not just in the conference, in red zone defense, third down percentage. That's got to get better. You remember the old psycho defense days on third down? We'd all get out there and go crazy, and everybody was all excited. 
we've got to be able to get quarterbacks on the ground. And some of that, too. You know, last year we were not able to generate a lot of pressure with our front four, so as a result we had to bring another guy. So let's talk about quarterback pressures, right? Let's talk about sacks. Just in case you're wondering, Oklahoma State led the country. 57 sacks, 4.07 a game. The only team in the country to average four or more a game, Oklahoma State. Mike Gundy, who is a man uh, in his 50s now, getting to be an old man, right, Mike? So kind of run through the numbers here, just kind of getting down. You know, we were not a team that I think people feared our pass rush. I think a lot of people felt like, hey, we'll, we'll do this, and maybe we got to change some things. But we're 72nd in the country, averaged just over two sacks a game. All right, what if we just get one more, right? What if we just get one more per game to get us around three a game? We're just talking one, right? If we get three a game, that puts us in a top 20 in the country based on last year's numbers. One more a game. And in a blitz-happy scheme like us, I don't think three sacks is asking a whole lot. And those are things that you begin to kind of think about. It's like a lot of people are playing kind of a base – Defense, kind of a cover two. You're playing that old Tampa two, not bringing a lot of heat. It's kind of dependent on their front four to be able to go make plays for them. You know, we weren't able to do that. So we bring more pressure, and then we can't get them down. That has got to get better. There's no question about it. That has to be better. It's not just enough to send the guy. we got to complete the play. Let's look at team tackles for loss. I mean, that should be a tenet of this scheme, right? Because basically what we're trying to do is move the line of scrimmage back. We don't want you making plays down the field. We want to shove your offensive line into your face, and we want to be able to make plays behind the line of scrimmage. You know, when Manny Diaz was here, that was, again, kind of a tenet of the Mississippi State experience. We were among the national leaders in tackles for loss. Last year, 74th in the country. Five and a half tackles for loss per game. Five and a half. So what if we get one more? What if we're averaging six and a half, right? Well, if we're averaging six and a half, guess what, guys? That's got us right there in the top 30, 35, right outside the top 30. Just one more. And so we talk about how every play matters and every down matters and every tackle matters and every missed tackle matters. It's true. Again, the, the, the difference between being – seven and five and being nine and three are these little things we're talking about you convert one more first down on offense you make one more sack on defense and all of a sudden the analytics and and people are so caught up in those numbers these days they kind of fit their narrative but the reality of it is a lot of times it is just one more play it's just one more play you just need a guy to make another 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 play and you think you would hope now that some of these playmakers of ours are older and more mature and have been through the wars for a couple of years, now they can look at that and say, you know what, hey, I can make that one more play this year. And it is amazing to look at the numbers. Now, it's, it's one thing, you know, games aren't played on paper. you got to scheme it up and you got to execute. And there were times last year we were not a great tackling team. That's got to improve, too. You want to see the tackles for loss go up? You want to see the sacks go up? Improve your tackling. I mean, how many times last year did we have a blitzer come free only to see the quarterback step up in the pocket and then run 
or deliver downfield. I mean, Matt Corral did it to us, right? KJ Jefferson did it to us. And so we talk about inconsistency on offense. And, again, when you look at the totality of the defense, when you look at scoring defense, you look at total defense, you feel pretty good about that. But you dig a little deeper into this thing and you begin to realize it's those tough yards that we're giving up. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by your friends at Portico. Brooks Bryan is my friend. He's your friend. He is a friend to Mississippi State and a friend to Starkville. I'm going to encourage you, if you hadn't looked into it, it's time to get a place in Starkville. It's not as hard as you might think. You say, well, Steve, there's so much going on in the world. You listen, Portico, phase one completely sold out. Your new neighbors are already enjoying life in the Golden Triangle. It's where you always want to be. Many of your best memories are here in Starkville, so why not move here full time? Maybe it's your ball game weekend retreat. Maybe it's your future retirement home. You can start with a two-bedroom, two-bath home up to a four-bedroom, four-bath home. I've shared with you all before. If I was moving to Starkville now, I'd move to Portico. If your real estate agent hasn't mentioned Portico, you need to ask. And ask why not. Give Brooks a call for more information, 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. Make Portico your next move. All right, the unit that has to be more improved than last year, without question, is special teams. Now, we've addressed it. We have. We went out and got George. George Jeropoulos, George, George Jeropoulos. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce the name yet. Grad transfer from UMass. We needed him. We got a new kicker, Massimo Biscardi. We needed him. There's no question about it. Probably two of the most glaring needs on the team. I think we would all agree with that. It's one of those things you look at and you begin to kind of wonder, you know, how did we win as many games as we did? with what we had you know and how much how much difference would it have made last year if we would have had decent specialists we weren't even decent you know this UMass last year net punting 27th in the country what would we have given for that (laughs) right my goodness man UMass, and now we have their punter, 41.31 yards net punt per game. It's a pretty good average, all things considered. And you begin to kind of look at what Mississippi State had, and you begin to realize, too, that, I mean, it was just absolutely abysmal what we did last year on special teams. There are, last year, 130 Division I teams. We finished 127th in net punting. 33.75, just two touchbacks a game. It's horrendous, man. You start running the numbers here. I mean, obviously, uh, Mike Leach not a guy that likes to punt anyway. I can see why. So you're going to get a guy that's going to average or has averaged almost eight yards more, probably seven and a half more yards per punt. You start looking at net defense, you know, all of a sudden that's one more first down they got to pick up. It all works hand in hand. We were abysmal in punting. The worst team in the country was Western Michigan, 33.06. We beat them by .69 yards. That's it. Awful. Obviously last in the SEC. You start talking about hidden yards in a football game, it's net punting. 
It's brutal, man. Absolutely brutal. Then you begin to kind of factor in, too. You start, we start talking about the things that go with it. I mean, there was a game-changing play here a couple of years ago, you know, block punts for us. You know, we, you know, we just had some special teams issues last year all the way around. And even when we could punt it, you know, we, we didn't do a very good job covering it, you know. And then, you know, we had a block punt last year. You know, all these things matter. Every single one of them matter. And you guys know it. I know it. Mike Leach knows it. So what does he do? He goes out and, and he corrects it. All right, let's look at, you know, kickoffs, right? Kickoff return defense last year. Again, you know, we had some pretty good guys with some with some big feet, you know, but we just we, we were really struggling in really all aspects of special teams. And I think sometimes too, again, you know, the the hidden yards within a football game. You start running these things down and you begin to realize, you know, we needed to make a change there and Mike Leach not asleep at the wheel. Mississippi State last year, out of hundred and thirty division one teams, we were hundred and second. And kickoff coverage. 102nd. I'm not trying to get you depressed here. But when you start beginning to look at all this stuff and you begin to realize, too, that, you know, how many yards do we give up on special teams that shorten the field for our opponents? And it wasn't just kickoffs. You know, we weren't punting the ball deep, and then we still weren't even, even really able to cover the punt with any great level of success. I mean, there's just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, in every aspect. It's just remarkable to think, you know, that we were able to have a winning season when you look how, how the yards go. And again, out of 130 teams, guys, we finished 129th in punt coverage. 129th. And gave up a couple of touchdowns. In tight ball games, that matters. Could be the difference in winning and losing. And for us, it mattered a whole lot more. It's because of the fact that, um, you know, we knew we had all these other issues. We struggled at times, you know, to get uh, points on the board and to keep people out of the end zone. And then we're making it easy for them because we're not winning the battle of field position. We talked about our red zone struggles and how many times we came away with no points. I mean, it's like you begin to kind of run through the numbers here on field goal kicking. You know, we talked about it last year. I think it's worth discussing again. You know, I think you go back and you look at it again and you begin to realize how bad we were at converting field goals. And it wasn't like we're just kind of trotting out there trying to hit 50 yarders. Guys, we didn't we didn't have anybody that could consistently make a field goal. That's what's so ridiculous about every bit of this. You start running the numbers here and you start realizing if we could have just been average – and field goal kicking. There was a time there we were last in the country. And you start looking at these numbers, and they kind of make you cringe a little bit. And so let's look at what we did last year, special teams-wise. I mean, it just it just blows your mind when you look at these field goal attempts. Guys, so we were 14 of 25. 14 of 25. That – that just that's not going to win you any close games. You know, and it didn't. And at no point did anybody ever feel like, hey, we're in a great position here. 
Look at our – we talk about red zone scoring. Red zone touchdowns last year. We, we got in red zone 57 times. We scored a touchdown 35 times. We made 13 field goals. So nine other times we didn't score at all. But we need to convert some of those red zone opportunities into field goals. Now the good thing is you address that need by going out and getting Massimo Biscardi. I would, I would submit to you, as great as the transfer portal was for us, there's probably not a more significant newcomer than Massimo Biscardi. I mean, did you ever think you'd be this excited about a kicker? So in four years, and of course he gets the COVID year back, right? So he gets grad transfer a year. So in 18, he goes 13 of 16 as a true freshman. In 19, 15 of 20. 2020, 11 of 13, and then last year, 7 of 8. You say, well, Steve, those are great numbers, but where did the misses come from? Well, anything under 20 in the red zone, he's never missed a kick under 20 yards in college. He hadn't attempted very many. Under 30, this, this is where it gets great. He's missed two kicks in his career under 30 yards. And that's uh, 19, 20 attempts. So he's 19 of 20 from inside 30 yards. What, what a difference would that make for us? Un, from 30 to 39 in his career, he's missed four kicks. Long-range kicking, 50-plus. This is going to blow your mind here. He's four of five from 50-plus. Now, 40 to 49, it's been a little bit of an adventure at times. Uh, two of three last year, three of five the year before, five for five in 19. So you go get a guy like him because it doesn't really matter the level of competition when it comes to kicking, right? I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over again. you got to be mechanical. you got to be robotic, and he is. So we had a huge deficiency on special teams. None of the coverage teams were good. None of the specialists were good. So you make a change coaching-wise. You have Eric Milley take over there. Matt Brock, who I still think is a great coach, was one of the better special teams coaches in the country in 2020. Last year, it all kind of fell apart on him. And some of that's personnel, which kind of leads me to my next point. It's recruiting. So we talk about getting George Doropoulos and getting Massimo Biscardi. That makes you better, too. But you also get some other guys out of the portal that I think improve your program. We, we all have these negative feelings about the portal. There's so many things about, oh, we hate it, we hate it, we hate it. Well, the positive side of this is it has allowed Mississippi State to address some deficiencies. I don't think there's any question about that. We've done a good job addressing some deficiencies in the portal. Of course, there's Makai Polk, who was the, uh, a, a transfer portal success story. Underutilized the cow, came in here, did a good job. Jameer Calvin, pretty good job. Had a good spring. We need a breakout year from him. But you begin to think, okay, we get Jordan Morant, a safety from Michigan. Hadn't played a whole lot, was banged up his first year. This guy was a four-star at high school. You get Hunter Washington from Florida State, a bit of a squat corner. He's listed at 5'11". I think he's smaller than that. Four-star at high school. Steven Lasoria, you know what you're getting there, probably a depth guy on the offensive line. And you had to get a guy like that. You had to get a guy. And you get Justin Robinson, a four-star to high school that signed with Georgia. 
a little bit banged up out there. His coach tells him he's not injury prone. You get Jordan Mosley, four-star in a high school. Jackie Matthews, three-star in a high school, four-star in a transfer portal. You get Marcus Banks, a four-star in a high school. And so you start running these numbers down. These are players that really weren't interested in coming here. I think we probably could have got Jackie Matthews out of, the port, out of uh, junior college. But who do you think's running down on special teams to make these plays? So all of a sudden, you bring in a better brand of athlete to play on special teams in addition to kind of fill out your two deep. And next thing you know, all of a sudden, your coverage units are getting better. You're getting better results from your kicker and your punter. And you've got better athletes running down the field trying to blow somebody up. And I think that's something that can, can really excite you. You know, we look at the numbers and we talk about recruiting, and, of course, uh, it, it only tells part of the story. You know, state uh, composite rank at 27, and not all of our transfers are rated. But what if we were only depending on the high school and junior college signees to help kind of turn these coverage units around? we'd probably be in trouble. But you begin to think about some of these guys that are looking to find a job, and that's where they're going to break in right out of the gates, going to be on special teams. Is Mike Leach recruiting better than he ever has? Yes, he has. Are we recruiting at a better level than we have historically? No. We're pretty much what we have been. And that's okay. You know, I think Mike Leach schematically is so much different than everybody else. I don't think you have to recruit in the top 20. But if we can move from, you know, 30 to 25 up to 24 to 20, I think we all feel a little bit better about our brand of athlete. So we're getting there. But I wanted to touch on these topics today because I think it's one of those things sometimes we forget. It's like, oh, we went 7-5 and five last year. We lost the egg and lost the, the ball game. And all that's true. But if you do a little bit of a deeper dive, you begin to realize, too, that the difference between 7-5, and 8-4, and four, and potentially 9-3 and three was actually pretty small. The margin between those two numbers goes down to making an extra play a game. All of a sudden, you make that big punt, and you cover it up, and you give somebody the length of the field. All of a sudden, you're winning the battlefield position. You get in that third and long and you get that big sack rather than blowing by the guy, you're getting off the field. And, and listen, we all saw last year in the LSU ball game, you know, LSU had a chance for the coup de grace here. We had a self-inflicted penalty, right? Remember that, the leaping penalty? We had them stop. We had all the juice. What do we do? We run out there and get an unnecessary penalty? And Which reminds me, let's look at that too. You know, let's look at penalties last year. Because, you know, I didn't think that we were an undisciplined team. But we had some penalties that, um, you know, were really kind of inopportune at times. I think we would all agree with that. It's like when we made a big penalty, like against the Arkansas game, you know, we're – and I still don't believe that we uh, – you know, we made, you know, that, that, that foul. We're flagged for it. But uh, – you know, we were a team last year that, that hurt ourselves. There were times that we would make a big bonehead decision and we put ourselves in a bad situation. And how many times last year, like at right tackle, do we get called for holding or get called for false start and put the offense behind the field? It happened over and over and over again. Now, with a veteran team, you don't expect that. 
there's always going to be some errors. But it's not like this is a team that um, consistently shot themselves in the foot with unfirst errors on defense. More times than not, it seemed that that was on, on offense. And we did have some deficiencies on the offensive line when it came to that, especially at that right tackle position. Again, we're not going to be better this year at left tackle. Can we be good? Yeah, we can be good and still take a step back. And, and I'm okay with that. I just want to be good. We ain't got to be great. I just want to be good. When you start running, you know, when, you, when we're being honest with ourselves, there's no way we're going to be better than we were last year left tackle. And how could we be? We had one of the best left tackles in the country. I think everybody kind of saw it for what it was. But when you begin to kind of break down these numbers and you begin to realize that um, – you know, the majority of our offensive line penalties were at right tackle. But we were 116th in the country last year with 99 penalties. 99 penalties. And, again, there's only 130 Division One teams. So you got to clean that up. So if we can play a little more disciplined brand of football, and you should with a veteran team, right? You should. And how many of those holding calls and false starts, you know, because you had a guy that was relatively inexperienced at right tackle – and everybody used it. Ole Miss themselves, you know, they bring Sam Williams over to line up on Lashley to bring frontside pressure at Will Rogers. And you know, listen, Scott's a great guy. And I think if Scott had come to Mississippi State and had a chance to play four years with us, you know, he's not making that same level of mistake. But he did. I mean, that's just kind of call it for what it is. I mean, Scott will tell you he could have been better. And you hear these numbers and you think, man, how did we win a game last year? When I hear them, I'm encouraged because I began to think to myself, we don't have to have that much improvement with each unit to find those extra yards that are the difference in winning close ball games. I don't think there's any question. And so now all of a sudden you begin to think about, okay, what happened against Memphis? You know, what happened against Louisiana Tech? I mean, listen, we didn't have a ton of turnovers last year. We didn't. But when we did – it usually thwarted a scoring drive or it netted points. Remember the Louisiana Tech game? Will throws that uh, kind of half-hearted pass out of the flats. They pick it off, take it back. We're able to overcome it. It was a bad interception. We had an interception against LSU. We're going in and we lay it up. We don't see a guy. He drops into coverage and we throw it right to him. And we talked about the, Mich- the, the Memphis game. You know, we, we go out there, next thing you know, we give them a defensive touchdown. You know, all those things are important, man. I mean, it's like, especially when you're a team like us that, that has a tendency to shoot itself in the foot, you know, with penalties to put you behind the chains and things like that, and you can't really you know, convert. You know, the, all of that stuff, it all adds up. And let's look at turnover margin real quick here. I know we're running out of time here. I just want to make sure you get your money's worth today since you've had to wait on me. But turnover margin for us, again, you know, we weren't great. We weren't a great team at, at forcing turnovers. We didn't commit a whole lot, but at the same time, too, we, we didn't force a whole lot. 79th in the country at turnover margin, negative .15. I mean, let's just say you, you're able to generate one more turnover. It's like you look at this. We Look at our numbers here. We, had, we, we gained 16 turnovers. We had five fumble recoveries, 11 picks, so 16, right? 16 turnovers, and then we lost 18. Nine fumbles, nine interceptions. 
you know, the fumbles, the one thing you look at and you begin to think, you know, that, that just simply can't happen. But it did. So what if we just force more turnovers than we surrender, right? Let's just say one. You know, one, if we average one. And, and, and that's a big jump, it is. But all of a sudden, you begin to realize, too, you eliminate a couple turnovers and you generate a couple turnovers, well, you're easily in the top 20. And if you're plus one, you're in the top three. And so let's just say we pick up half a turnover a game. That puts us in the top 40. It's as simple as that. You got to make the next big play. You got to convert the one big third down. You got to make the big sack. So it's not as, you know, it's not maybe as far removed, I think, from where we want to be. And again, these special teams numbers were absolutely abysmal. I mean, I, you absolutely had to make a change there. And that that's, I think, is going to be one of the most significant improvements on this team. You give Will Rogers an extra possession a game, all of a sudden that score margin comes up, right? You give your defense the you know, the long end of the field, your turnover margin is probably coming up. Your third down percentage is probably coming up because those guys, you know, they got to make drive length of the field. You start giving everybody the short end of the field, you're going to give up points. So, again, we got to be better in the red zone on both sides of the football. No question about it. We can't be any worse in special teams. No doubt about it. But defensively, got to be a little bit better in pass defense. And I think you've addressed that in the portal. But also, too, you begin to think, we got if we're going to employ this blitz-happy scheme with a 3-3-5, we have got to get home and get quarterbacks on the ground. That's what made Mississippi State great under Jolie Dunn. It wasn't just that we forced the quick pass. We got in people's face. We got in people's heads. And that's what I think the challenge is for Zach Arnett this year, is how do we use our scheme to get that big impactful play, to get people behind the chains, to get the crowd in the ballgame. Thought you'd enjoy the show today. I hope you did. If you hadn't, go to dogpilethebook.com. And get, you can get signed copies of Flim Flam, Alpha Dog, Stark Villains, and Dogpile. The second printing Dogpile is in. You can get the newest one, right? The new edit is in. And then we're almost out of Stark Villains and Alpha Dogs. If you haven't gotten those, you need to make sure you get those. Simple as that. A lot of people have hit me up and say, oh, I didn't know. How many books you written? Two. I've written five. I've written five. The, of course, number four was Blooms of Oleana, the book of poetry. Not a sports book by any stretch of the imagination, but if you're looking for that, you can find it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, BooksMillion.com, or your neighborhood bookstore can order it for you. Looking for Stark Villains gear? Find it at StarkVillains.com. Get those tees for you. If you're somebody you know loves a boneyard, maybe that's your gift for them this year. Remember, they've always thought, hey, I'd like to have one of those shirts. They'll never think about ordering it. You can do it for them, StarkVillains.com. That's it for today. I will be back tomorrow. I'll try to get you a show done earlier in the day. I'll do my best. But until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we'll make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.